Before I introduce our esteemed guest, uh, Mark Andreessen, um, I'd like you to thank again, uh, particularly our faculty who uh, have put an awful lot of time into this, uh, to Jennifer Whittem, to Amy Seagard, to her uh, co-pilot, John Taylor. Um, I'd just like us to thank everybody who did so much to make this possible, so thank you. Hello, Mark. Hello. <laughs> Good afternoon. How are you? Good, so great. first of all, let me just introduce you briefly. I think people know Mark Andreessen, co-founder and general partner at the venture capital firm Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, to say that he's an innovator and creator is uh, to understate the case. He's a real pioneer in software uh, and software now used by a billion people, uh, one of the few to establish multiple billion dollar companies. Mark co-created the highly influential Mosaic Internet Browser and co-founded Netscape, uh, which later sold to AOL. He also co-founded uh, LotaLoud, which uh, was uh, Opsware, which sold to Hewlett Packard. And he served on the board of Hewlett Packard. Mark holds a BS in computer science from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign and serves on the boards of Andreas and Horowitz portfolio companies, Applied Intuition, Carta, Coinbase, Dialpad, Flow, Golden, Honor, OpenGov, and Samsara. You're busy. Yes. And he's on the board of Meta. So Mark, uh, you kind of shocked the world uh, a little bit ago with uh, a manifesto. And uh, I just wanna ask you, did you intend to be provocative? So it turns out uh, being pro-technology is a very, uh, is a very uh, radical position these days. Um, uh, uh, for those of you who have read it, um, uh, one way to read it is it's just Clinton Gore liberalism from 1995 um, <laughs> written down. And, uh, and, and, the, and the fact that, you know, it's, some people have been shocked by it or shocked as they are, I think is as much a sign of just the, the, how much the times have changed. I mean, think, things have, the attitudes have really, really seriously changed over the last mm -hmm. 25 years. Um, and so, you know, like in a sense, it's very radical in a sense, it's, it's very much not, um, you know, the, the reason I wrote it, you know, quite frankly, is because, you know, we, we work with uh, young tech founders and engineers all the time. And they're just, you know, in, in my view, they, they and the broader society are just on the receiving end of, of what I call the manifesto. It's just this constant demoralization campaign to kind of just, you know, basically just like take on the most pessimistic possible interpretation of anything new that happens in, in, in tech. And it's, it's just, I think it's just gotten to the point. It's been building for a long time, but I think it's just gotten to the point where it's kind of, you know, we're sort of in the theater of the, of the absurd. So I at least thought it would make sense to kind of write down the kind of argument. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm going to quote uh, uh, your unconditional defense of technology and ask you to say a, a bit more about it. Um, we're told that technology takes our jobs, reduces our wages, increases inequality, threatens our health, ruins the environment, degrades our society, corrupts our children, impairs our humanity, threatens our future, and is on the verge of running of ruining everything. Well, now that's quite a statement. So- uh, No, the yes. good news is you don't have to read the New York Times tomorrow. Because <laughs> I, I covered it all. Yeah, okay. you covered all right. it all. Okay. So essentially what you are trying to do in this manifesto is to say that we've become overly cautious about technology and uh, is your concern about our overly cautious approach to technology uh, that we will uh, not allow innovation, that will frighten off innovators, uh, that uh, will come to this in a moment, uh, but that regulators who will regulate even if they don't understand what they're regulating uh, might in fact cut off 
uh, pathways to regulation. So what is it about uh, what you're calling here techno-pessimism uh, that really is concerning uh, to you at this particular, you, you mentioned the young tech uh, entrepreneurs, uh, innovators, is it that they will, will not feel that they are appreciated in the way that maybe even 10 years ago, Silicon Valley was sort of the the heart of uh, of those, uh, you know, people were coming here from all over the world to understand uh, Silicon Valley. So what is it that concerns you? Yeah, so I'll take a little bit of a broader perspective on this. So there, there's a, w- a website called WTF happened in 1971.com. And WTF, for those of you who, if, 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 if you don't recognize that, ask your kids, uh, they'll tell you. Um, <laughs> first two words are what the... Um, and, uh, so WTF happened in 1971 and it's this site that basically has chart after chart after chart after chart of basically social and economic trends in the U S that changed. Um, and, and I should start, I should also say, like, I take this very personally. I was born in 1971. So the, the, the you know, the timing is exquisite. I, I like to think it's not, not all my fault. Um, but just a tremendous number of things basically started to change in the 1970s. Um, and, and, and one of the things that basically changed was the, the sort of national attitude um, uh, went, um, you know, kind of sort of starkly negative uh, on tech. Um, there's actually this very interesting juxtaposition Peter Thiel talks about of uh, Woodstock and the Apollo moon landing happened basically the same uh, in the same week. Um, and basically the culture decided to go away from the moon landing and, and basically towards, you know, with, with the sort of the, the values of the Woodstock generation. Um, and, and then basically the, the, the applied version of this that happened was uh, Richard Nixon um, in 1971 uh, proposed something he called Project Independence. Um, and Project Independence was a sort of, a, it was actually a Kennedy-esque kind of call for national greatness. Um, and, uh, but his form of it was, he said, we should achieve energy independence uh, by 1980 with clean energy. Uh, and the way that we should do that is we should build a thousand new civilian nuclear power plants in the United States over, over the course of the next nine years. Uh, we should cut the complete the U.S. energy grid completely over to nuclear uh, uh, power and then ele- electric uh, energy. You know, we should start completely stop fossil fuels. You know, we should you know cut cut over to electric cars. Electric cars are actually a very old technology. They're actually electric cars were actually invented before internal combustion cars. So, um, you know, we could have cut over to to electric cars at any point. Um, and then you know, sort of consequently, we could go like completely emissions free uh, across the entire U.S. energy sector. Um, it was a very exciting call to action. Um, he also, in that same period, created the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, which then prevented that from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so it's one of these situations where we, you know, we just sort of have developed this sort of pattern in American society where we basically, when it comes to tech topics, we sort of shove the accelerator down as hard as we can, and then we shove the brake down as hard as we can at the same time, and we kind of expect something to happen. Um, you know, sitting here today, you know, there has been, was it, I forget the exact number, it's either zero or one new nuclear power plants approved over the course, basically, since the Nuclear Regulatory Commission was uh, was formed. And so, like, and, you know, look, this is playing with, like, live ammunition. Like, this is, like, a very, you know, kind of big topic. You know, if you're on the right, you're like, oh, my God, like, the government basically just, like, strangled, you know, one of the great new, you know, industries, um, you know, that America could have dominated. If you're on the left, you're like, oh, my God. You know, we could have solved carbon emissions, you know, 40 years ago. Um, and, you know, we've, 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 we've you know, and we, we didn't. Um, and so basically like that, that, you know, that, that basically set the pattern. And, and then basically that's now playing out in sector after sector after sector. Mm-hmm. Um, in, you know, another thing to look at, you know, today is basically just you, you have these just industries that have just like are, 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 are sort of chewing up, you know, larger and larger major shares of GDP every year and specifically healthcare, education, housing. Um, and then you could just say generally law, government, administration as a sector. Um, and, you know, these are sectors that are just exploding uh, in, in sort of size um, are, you know, characterized by either zero or negative productivity growth. You know, they're, they're basically impossible to introduce technology into 
um, you know, we, we, we live with the sort of real world consequences of that, of that every day. And so, the, you know, these, yeah, this, 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 this topic, uh, I think, carries real implications. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds as if, in part, it's a, a mismatch. You, you get the technologies, but the institutions somehow don't quite accept them or push them forward. The nuclear case is a very interesting one. I was just in, in France. France gets 80% of its generating power from nuclear. Right. Um, and just next door, Germany has shut down nuclear. And so one of the things that we're trying to do through uh, CEDAR is to be concerned about how policy has an effect. So the, the nuclear regulatory is a really interesting example. We will return to that. Let me go to um, it's one of the hot topics. So yeah. One more thing. Sure. Yeah. So, so the other, Germany, so mentioned, Germany just shut down the nukes, of course, like a way to interpret Basically, everything happening around Ukraine is basically it's a European energy war, like yeah. in, a, in a lot of yeah. ways, in that basically Europe has been subsidizing the Russian military machine right, yeah. through the, the purchase of, of Russian oil and gas for, for all these years. Um, some of you remember Trump actually went to the UN and basically gave this basically speech excoriating the Germans for becoming energy reliant right yeah. on, on Russia. And, you know, there was this like famous viral video at the time where the kind of German, you know, representatives of the UN were like, you know, you know, making faces about what an idiot Trump was. And it, it basically... Actually, you know, people have been telling him ever since Ronald Reagan not to become dependent on Russian natural gas. But, and, and they did, yes. right? And, and to your point, like yeah. they shut down their new plants. You know, we, we, by the way, we, you know, we, of course, do, we have California, we're completely committed to European policy on everything. So we shut down our nuclear plants. <laughs> like we just think everything Europe does is great. So, um, so, 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 so that's the modern version. There, there actually is a, there, there's an origin to, to, to that story, which is actually this, this idea of the precautionary principle. Um, and the precautionary principle, those of you who are you know, experts in, in, in sort of science and technology policy know, know this. Uh, this is like a formal uh, process. It's sort of more widely known in Europe than, than it is here, but it, it's a real thing. Uh, but, but even if the term is not used, it's sort of the, the theory that's applied to technology policy today. And, and, and basically what the precautionary principle says is that uh, for any new technology, the, the people building the technology have to have to prove that it's harmless uh, before they're allowed to roll it out. It's actually very similar to the drug approval process for the FDA. You have to prove that it doesn't cause injury before you, you, you can roll it out. Um, the precautionary principle was actually created by the German Green Party in the 1970s to stop nuclear power. Mm-hmm. All right. So that, that, that was actually its purpose. And now it's basically being applied across the entire economy. Of course, the problem with it, the problem with the precautionary principle, it sounds great. Of course, you want to prove that things are not going to harm people. The problem is if you, if you backtest that theory and if you basically apply that same principle to any basically important technology of the last basically 4,000 years, starting with fire, <laughs> the shovel, um, you know, the wheel, uh, the automobile, electricity, you know, like you just, you just go right down the list. Um, you know, they all, they all would have been stopped in their tracks uh, by the precautionary principle. And so one of the ways to think about the last, you know, 4,000 years of human civilization is that we basically did not apply the precautionary principle up until 1971, and we, we've applied it since. So if you don't apply a precautionary principle, however, um, is there any responsibility of the uh, technology entrepreneur of the technology, I mean, not use the word entrepreneur, the technologist. Is there any responsibility to think about the implications of your technology? I'll give you, we're gonna talk about artificial intelligence in a minute. I was at a dinner recently on artificial intelligence and somebody asked me, uh, will it become a weapon of war? And I had to say, look, every technology has become a weapon of war. Uh, When you think about nuclear, when we learn to split the atom, uh, we were able to turn on the lights for civil nuclear. We were able to do medical ice stuffs. We also built the bomb. So inherent in any technology, there is the potential for it to be used to these purposes. So uh, do we just 
wait and see what happens? Or how would you think about that as a technologist? Yeah, so this is a really fundamental question that's gotten sort of deeply embedded in human culture for a very long time. Um, I always cite the sort of myth of Prometheus that the Greeks, you know, kind of encoded into our culture, which is you know, basically this idea that, that uh, Prometheus was the, the god who brought fire down to man. Um, and for doing that, he was chained to a rock by Zeus and has his liver pecked out by an angry bird every day. Uh, it gets regenerated overnight, and then yeah. it goes to... I'm, I'm sure Richard, our, our classicist, knows that story, our you, president you, knows if, that if story. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so, like, th this idea, basically, of technology, again, starting with fire, this idea of technology as a double-edged sword is, like, is, is obviously very fundamental. You know, there's a more recent, uh, you know, kind of version of this, the Frankenstein myth, um, you know, more, and then, you know, in our time, it's, you know, it's the Terminator or Skynet. Um, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, so, so look, this is, this is like a, a very fundamental thing. I think it's, you know, obviously it's certainly true that technologies are double-edged swords. Like I, I think they basically any, any, any sort of effective technology ends up, you know, having, 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 having sort of uh, uh, negative uses. You know, you get into these very interesting questions about like gunpowder, right, for example, which is like, you know, did, did, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you score gunpowder after all this time, right? Was it basically all the death that it caused or was it basically the establishment of the nation state and the ability to, you know, provide, you know, for defense and law enforcement and social order? Um, you know, you could, we, we've had this conversation before actually about nuclear weapons, you know, did nuclear weapons actually like, were they actually destructive or, or on net did they actually prevent World War III? So you get into these like very fundamental questions. These are real questions. Uh, but then the very next question you have to ask is, are the technologists who invent the technology actually the ones who should be answering these questions? Like the, the, the fact that you invent the computer, right, or the radio or whatever, or the AI uh, or the nuclear bomb, like does mm -hmm. that give you uh, basically special privileges in our society to be able to answer those questions? Um, Everybody probably here, probably everybody saw the movie Oppenheimer. Um, you know, one of the things that the movie did a really good job of, one is it, it wrestled with this question a lot, but it did a really good job of basically showing how crazy, how politically crazy the, the, a lot of the atomic scientists were of that time. And a lot of them were like actual communists. Um, and a lot of them, it turns out, were like fair, large number of them were like actually like Soviet spies, right? And they actually like, you know, the, the first Russian nuclear atomic bomb was, as they say, wire for wire compatible with the U.S. Nagasaki bomb. And it's because you had these kind of crazed Antifa, basically nuclear scientists handing everything over to the Russians. Um, and, and then, by the way, you also had, by the way, a, a similar level of extremeness on the other side. You had John von Neumann, uh, who was on, on the right, who was, who was not in the movie, but he was critical to developing the bomb was one of the great geniuses of the century. And he actually advocated in 1945 a nuclear first strike uh, against the Soviet Union. And, and his line was, um, if you tell me we should bomb tomorrow, I say, why not today? Uh, if you tell me we should bomb at five o'clock, I say, why not two o'clock? Okay, so crazy communist Oppenheimer, like crazy right winger, like von Neumann, right? Like, how about we not listen to either of those guys, right? Like, <laughs> I don't think these, and, and, you know, I put it this way, I don't think it'll shock anybody here to say, look, when people cloister themselves away at an ivory tower for their lives working on some, you know, technical formula, they might not emerge with like totally sensible politics. I, I know that might be a you know, crazy concept. Um, and so I think these, like, like, I guess maybe, maybe, maybe wrap it up by saying like, these questions are too important to be left to the technologists. Like th these are very, very fundamental questions. Um, that have to be dealt with at a societal level. Um, they have to be dealt with, you know, kind of very deeply at a philosophical level. They have to be developed at a political level. And one of the things you see happening right now is we have these quote unquote experts. Well, we saw it during COVID. Every virologist all of a sudden was a public, you know, was sort of a public health expert, you know, getting involved in all kinds of societal engineering. And, and I just think that, that the fundamental assumption there is just like deeply wrong. Yeah, I, I want to come back to that because, uh, again, pointing to what we're trying to do here is to marry these two worlds in some ways. But but let me talk for a minute, uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, you had a quote, we believe artificial intelligence is our alchemy, our philosopher's stone. We are literally making sand think. Yes. 
um, when I read that, I thought, is that a good thing that Sam thinks? So uh, why, why don't you talk a little bit about why artificial intelligence is uh, special in this, this way? Yeah, so, well, okay, so special. Oh, I'll start by saying why it's good. We could see if it's special. So why is it good? So, well, so look, basically, like, all of, all of human civilization, everything we're, we're surrounded by is sort of the application of intelligence, right? And so our ability to build a building like this, our ability to turn the lights on, and our ability to, you know, have the discussions we're having, like, it, it's all based on, on, on human intelligence. Um, you know, look, we, we have used prosthetics, you know, for as long as we've been able to develop technology to try to augment our intelligence. And we, you know, for spoken language and then written language and then mathematics and then computers, Right. Uh, and many other technologies, um, you know, we're, we're all constantly trying to kind of find ways to use tools to kind of make us smarter or at least leverage the intelligence that we have in, in kind of more interesting ways. Um, and, and then look, the, yeah, the holy grail for computer science for the last 80 years, actually all the way back to literally 19, like 1941, 1942, the, the holy grail has always been, OK, computers are hyper literal. Right. Um, and they're really good at like math calculations at like super high speed. But they famously fall down when you expect them to interact with the real world, when you expect them to interact with people, when you expect them to do natural language, anything or under, you know, sort of understand concepts or anything. Um, and so there, there's been this 80 year research project, including, you know, by the way, many decades here at Stanford, uh, you know, to actually try to get computers to think at least a little bit more like people do. Uh, and, and basically, it, it turns out that research program was correct. Um, and, and by the way, that comes as a huge surprise because that was an 80-year research project that actually had many, many false starts. Um, you know, there were, there were many crashes uh, and wipeouts along the way. When I, when I came to Silicon Valley in 93, like it was like a deep AI winter where like nobody, nobody believed in these ideas and it was, it was basically a dead field. Um, and, and it basically, it turns out it was right. And then what it, what it presents is the opportunity to basically leverage human intelligence in all the, all the ways in which we think that we have problems that we need to solve. Uh, and that could be everything from biomedical research. That could be, you know, a very broad cross-section of what you would view as, as sort of obviously good, uh, applications, you know, education, I think, you know, AI is, I think it's already transformative for education, but I think it's going to be like monumentally transformative in, in the years ahead in a, in a very positive way. Um, but look, at, at the same time, it is also absolutely correct. It is a weapon of war. Um, AI is actually already a weapon of war. Both the U.S. Department of Defense and the Chinese military have declared, even pre, you know, pre all this recent stuff, as far back as, as the mid uh, 2010s, they bo both the U.S. and China had declared that AI and autonomy uh, and perception uh, were, were um, uh, you know, basically auto automated weapons were, were the, the, the future of, of both of those militaries. Uh, the U.S. DOD defines this as what they call the third offset, which is, which is they're, they're, they call offsets basically ways that you win war are basically guaranteed. And the first offset was nuclear weapons. Um, the second offset, I think, was precision guided munitions, maneuver warfare. Um, and then the third, uh, the third offset is, is an, an autonomy. So, you know, China's absolutely racing ahead to apply, uh, you know, uh, AI weapons. Um, you know, there's uh, very active DOD programs and defense contractors and new startups uh, pursuing that. Um, there is the opportunity to apply those new AI warfare technologies in ways that I think are very beneficial, and we could talk about that. But at the same time, we exactly your point. We are entering a world in which there will be need to be a new set of military doctrines, and, and those will need to be thought about very carefully. Well, well, let me have you be the optimist for a moment on on AI. So, what what does excite you over the horizon about what it might be able to do? Yeah, I'll just give you a micro example. So, we have a company. Uh, we have a company called Shield AI, and it's it's co-founded by uh, twin brothers. Uh, one of them is a chip engineer from Qualcomm, and the other is a Navy SEAL. Um, and so it turns out they're the perfect founding team for this kind of thing. And they have developed a drone that will, uh, for small unit operations, that will clear buildings. Uh, right. And so like what happens when, you know, when we when we were active in, you know, Mosul or, you know, Ramadi or Fallujah, all these places or, you know, literally what's happening like right now in Israel, uh, you know, go, well, literally right now in Israel, like right in real time, they're going into the into the hospital. 
Um, and so what, what, you know, what the army Marine special forces have to do in a lot of, you know, any sort of urban, you know, situation these days, counterinsurgency thing, um, they have to go kick indoors. Uh, they go kick indoors, they go inside, they clear the room. Uh, the American sniper had a lot of this, if, if you want to see the, the fictional uh, version of it. Um, and you know, they look, they go into the guns drawn. Uh, they don't know who the bad guys are. They don't know who has a weapon. They don't know who has a bomb, uh, grenade. Uh, they're going, you know, room to room. There's tremendous risk to the soldiers uh, who are involved. There's also tremendous risk to the civilians, the innocents uh, that are in there. And there's there's lots of accidents that take place. Uh, and so now there's this drone, this, this this drone from Shield AI, and it's a little backpack drone. And basically, you you still need the person to kick the door. But once you kick the door, you you, you sail the drone inside, and the drone autonomously goes room to room, maps the house or the building, uh, and has a military sensor package on it. Uh, and, and, and relays all this to the operators outside on their, on their phones in, in real time and, and has like infrared. So it, it basically is able to spot everybody in, in the thing. It's able to map the whole thing in 3D. It's able to spot everybody in it. It's able to give you video and it's able to classify friend info, right? And so by the time the person actually goes, by the time the soldier actually goes in, you actually, if there's a bad guy with an AK-47 in the closet, you actually already know that and you know it's not this person, it's, it's that person. Yeah. And so there's the opportunity here, right? I mean, anybody who's, at least what I've always heard from people who've been in conflict situations is, you know, the good news of human judgment is presumably humans, you know, care, care about life, or at least, you know, or at least uh, some do. You know, the bad news is, you know, lack of information, judgment, you know, adrenaline, um, you know, people getting, you know, kind of rattled under pressure, you know, high tension situations. Um, the opportunity to apply technology into situations like that uh, to be able to really drain the risk out and, and, and make it basically a more actually logical fact-based process uh, to be able to do things like this. I, I think there's the possibility that we might be actually seeing a very big step function down uh, in, in battle deaths. Interesting. And, and, and civilian deaths. Yeah. Uh, let me move to a couple of other uh, harder, hard questions. Uh, so you uh, are a big defender of liberal democracy. And uh, you're a techno uh, optimist. Um, I'm just assuming that you think it's really important that the United States and its allies win this race uh, rather than uh, authoritarians. And uh, you mentioned the nuclear age. I've often asked people to do the thought experiment. Suppose the Nazis and the Soviet Union had won the nuclear arms race rather than the United States. What might that have meant? So. Uh, I, I assume that that, you know, am I right, that you are concerned that this race that we're in be won by liberal democracies? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, so, and I, I, would, I would classify a few different ways. So first of all, I think it's important to win. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. And then I think it's also important to not then just hand over <laughs> what you've invented, um, right? Which is like, like we discussed how, how Russia got the bomb. So there's like, there's a part two in there, which is if you win, you have to actually maintain your victory. Um, which is which is a thorny, thorny thing these days. Um, uh, look, the importance of winning and the importance of winning in World War II with atomic weapons was was obvious. I think the importance of winning in AI is is, is very straightforward. Um, you know, and 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 the following is just I'm, I'm going to try to basically say what they have said. So this is not me casting aspersions on on, on China, but just saying what they've said. Uh, which is China has one of the great things about the Chinese Communist Party is they tend to just say it like they they have these they have these very like amazing kind of statements they put out and these like documents they put out um, these communiques and it's all it's all very it's all very like 1970s dictator language but like with like AI in it um, and. Um, and they have basically they have basically outlined they basically outlined a full national agenda around AI. Um, part of it is on the defense side, which we talked about, but they've also laid out a full strategy for an AI driven surveillance state society. 
Um, they have laid out an entire vision for this. And then they've laid out basically a vision and a goal that says this isn't just domestic China, which is, you know, and, you know, there's certainly enough issues just in domestic China to worry about. But um, this is also, they have an expansive vision. They want to, they want to take this other places. And so they have these programs like Digital Belt and Road and their Smart City program and their 5G program. Uh, right, where, where they have been using every instrument of state power that they have to proliferate their approach to network technology and to surveillance camera technology, right, and to, you know, to e-commerce technology, logistics technology, drone technology. Uh, you know, they've, they've spent the last 15 years deploying that out into as many countries as they can. There have been big fights. Actually, the U.S. has had big ongoing fights. Even major European countries have been, you know, adopting a lot of this stuff. Um, and so the, the next shoe that's 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 happening, it's fault is dropping right now is they're they're out with their AI strategy and they're going to go to all these same countries and they're going to say, look, do you want a you, do you want the American quote freedom quote democratic uh, kind of model of AI uh, for your country or do you want the Chinese you know state model and you know boy like you know I'm sure you tell your people you want the open and free one but like wouldn't it be nice to be able to track all your citizens in real time and wouldn't it be nice to know that political troubles like you know get brewing before it actually like hits the streets and you know wouldn't you know aren't you actually kind of jealous that we have the great firewall and don't you kind of wish you'd have a great firewall of your own um and so they're they're basically going to replay what they've been doing in these other sectors um in AI and there's a big you know, there's a big I mean basically the, the the future of I think geopolitics democracy and human rights you know hanging the balance yeah. So we've touched on a lot of kind of big uh, policy themes um, indirectly here, but but you made a statement earlier on. You said uh, these are big societal political issues that cannot just be left to the technologist. So that's why we're doing this, because we really do believe that uh, the ability of technologists who really are at the frontiers of the technology to collaborate with uh, those who have spent a lot of time thinking about uh, societal issues, economic issues, education, um, political issues, not to mention those who have to make decisions. You mentioned the European regulations, but it's coming in the United States uh, as to what do you regulate, how do you regulate, et cetera. So the, uh, the education, educational and collaborative process between technologists and those who worry about these institutions, um, what would you want them to know? How would you want them to think about it? Uh, because that's essentially what we're going to try to do um, with this effort in the Stanford Emerging Technology Review. So uh, how would you advise us on making this work for, for the techno-optimist techno but who understands that there are big implications for this technology. Yeah, so I think the big thing I say is just like, look, these are really complicated, multidimensional questions, right? Um, and even just in the conversation we've just had, we've touched on science, technology, sociology, you know, you very rapidly yeah. get into psychology, finance, geopolitics, security, right. geopolitics, right, political science. Um, and so these are very complicated, multidimensional things. I, I think the big thing is this, this is this is a time and these are the topics where ivory towers are going to be very dangerous. And let me start by saying one ivory tower is the tech industry. Um, and, you know, this is a criticism leveled against the tech industry from the outside very routinely, which is you guys are in this, you know, bubble, you know, you're in this kind of, you know, this universe of your own in Silicon Valley. You don't kind of understand what, what's happening in the rest of the world. I think there's a lot of truth to that. Um, and so I, I think you asked, like, what responsibility do technologists have? I think one responsibility is even if technologists should not be allowed to make these decisions, they should, we should at least try to learn as much as we can about how this, this all actually works as it plays out over time. 
Um, you know, a second dangerous ivory tower is basically just, you know, literally sit in a room and think. Um, and, and, you know, there's a few people in history who have been good at sitting in a room and thinking. Most people have done much better when they've gone out and talked to a lot of people and really tried to learn things. Um, you know, one of, one of the great virtues of Stanford and Silicon Valley always has been, you know, the world's best technology companies and, and, and technologists are, you know, within 20 miles of where we're sitting. So I think there's a great opportunity here to, uh, you know, to really have the, the minds of Stanford intersect maybe even more with the, the people actually building this stuff um going forward and then look third there's a third ivory tower and it's washington dc um and it's sort of the policy you know world um and it is three thousand miles away <laughs> and you know it's sometimes it feels like it's maybe on another planet um and you know i go out to dc a lot and i'm the alien you know invasive species um and they're kind of <laughs> staring at me like you know what what is this guy you know smoking and then you know they come out here and it's you know sort of vice versa um you know we've, we've been in various forums where, where folks come out here and they're a little bit you know, there's a lot of, a lot of long pauses in the conversation. Um, and so, um, and, and look, they, like, I just tell you, there just, there are not that many people in DC who deeply understand these issues. There's not a lot of technical expertise out there. You know, I view that again, as technologists, we have a real responsibility to go try to ex explain things, uh, out there. And we also have a responsibility to listen. And I think to the extent that you guys can continue doing what you've been doing or do more of it to kind of bring the two coasts together um, and the, the, the Silicon Valley DC world together, I think is, is very valuable. Now, I've been saying they've learned how to spell AI in Washington. Um, I'm not really sure they still understand what it, what it is. And so uh, if we can do our part in uh, bringing those two worlds together, um, it will be something that I think uh, Stanford is, uh, if not uniquely, uh, qualified to do and, and capable of doing pretty close to uniquely. And so thank you very much for being a part of our inaugural launch of the Stanford Emerging Technology Review. Thank you for everything that you've done uh, to, to bring technology to the fore, to make this place. You've been a part of this place for a long time, um, this Silicon Valley uh, community and um, your impact on uh, what we've been able to learn, know, create, innovate is really quite remarkable. And so thank you for that very much and come back anytime. Please join me in thanking Mark Anderson. <laughs>